this is Scott Mori with GPG Advisors. This is another RE Insight uh, podcast, and we're fortunate today to have Riggs Kubiak with Honest Buildings, the co-founder and and CEO of Honest Buildings. So I want to thank you for the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And and look forward to the discussion. So, uh, as I have in the past, I want to start in the beginning. And as we were talking just a few minutes ago, I said I do a lot of research in advance, and normally I could find a lot of stuff in the early years. And all I know about you is two things, actually. You grew up in Washington State, and I don't know for how long, and that you have a sister, Garrett, actually, who's going to come into play later. But can you talk about the early years and, and where you grew up? Yeah. I got to somehow fill out my story online if it's that hard to find <laughs> things, um, because your facts are true, but only partially true. One, I grew up, I did grow up in Washington State, Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, but that only started when I was 10 years old. Before uh, that, we actually, I was born in North Idaho in, a, oh, wow. in an amazing resort town called Sandpoint, Idaho, Yeah, which is one of the most incredible places in the world that no one knows about. Hmm. A lot of people have heard of a place called Coeur d'Alene, mm-hmm. Idaho. And Sandpoint, Idaho is effectively one town north of Coeur d'Alene, about 30 miles north yep. on a huge lake that's about 50 miles long and a beautiful ski mountain that overlooks the lake and the town has 5,000 people. So it's a four season resort town in the summer. It's people out on the lakes and in the winter, you know, people are skiing. It's about 90 miles from Spokane. So about an hour and a half from the the big city of of Spokane, Spokane. Washington. And uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. So he started a a ski company, like a Patagonia North Face, sort of like equivalent in Seattle. And he moved it to Sandpoint, Idaho, this four season resort town. And had uh, me and my sister Garrett, which uh, you, you find out about. And we have an older sister, Krista. So I'm mm-hmm. right in the middle. Um, we're well, two years apart, and we're very close uh, friends. And they all live back in Spokane now. So I'm yeah. the rogue uh, person that, that mm-hmm. made it west. But anyway, in, in about third, when I was in third grade, we moved to Spokane, which was the big city. Yeah. Um, just better schools, sort of. And uh, I think my parents were looking for just more opportunity for us outside of that very small town. And I went to a, a really great high school called Gonzaga Prep. So people know Gonzaga mm-hmm. College because of the amazing basketball team, which is my, I'm a super fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went to Gonzaga Prep School and then I wanted to do something different. So I moved to the East Coast and where I went to Boston College. Boston College. Yeah. So where's Gonzaga, Gonzaga, if I can say a prep, located then? It's right in Spokane, Washington. Oh, it is in Spokane. Yeah, so the, the Gonzaga University is right downtown in, yeah. in Spokane and Gonzaga Prep, the high school, yeah. is just a mile Interesting. away. Yeah. And then for that, Prep school, was there any level of specialization, meaning then were they forcing you to declare a major later in those years, like high school years? or Not in high school. No, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it was just a, just a relatively low-key private school, yeah. not like anything you would really think about on, on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, you know, no uniforms, no, like, yeah. you know, structure other than, like, just a very good school Education. with very good people in a really cool town. I mean, I think that... Spokane and, and especially North Idaho are is one of the most amazing regions in the world, really, that most people have never heard of. It's funny living on the East Coast. I say I'm from Idaho, and people say, oh, Iowa. Ah. I'm like, there's another state. It's called Idaho. It actually exists in our in our union here. Um, but it's a really amazing place, and I try and go back as much as I can. My whole family is still either in Spokane, and my parents are in Sandpoint in the summer. In uh-huh. Idaho. Yeah. Nice. I hadn't heard of it either. I've been to Boise. It was years ago, actually. I had a cousin that lived there. Actually, I have a nephew that lives there. Um, 
that lives there now. So how how did you pick Boston College then? How how did that go? Um, it was sort of interesting. I applied to colleges all over the country and got into colleges all over the country. And in a weird way, I I just sort of wanted to do something different. And I picked uh, Boston College because I had one small connection, which is my mom's family grew up on the East Coast. Yeah, and they have they had a um, place in Cape Cod, so I would go out in the summer for one week mm-hmm. to visit my grandparents. And I played a lot of tennis uh, on when I was growing up. Yeah, uh, pretty competitively. And then I and I met this tennis coach out in Cape Cod on like the one week when I was going to be there. And he happened to be the tennis coach at Boston College. Okay. So he sort of said, "Oh, it's this really great school. You should look into it." And um, I just that's how I sort of found out about it. Yeah. And then when I got in, I sort of thought it would be really interesting to kind of explore the world and get out of the Northwest with a theory that maybe I could go back. Right. You know, eventually, but it would be hard to move to such a big place. Right. You know, Boston, relative to New York, is tiny, but relative to Spokane, Jeez. it was like the the biggest city in the world. Yeah. Now you did uh, you did a stint overseas. I did. College. I went to Australia. Yeah. Yeah. I studied abroad at University of New South Wales mm-hmm. in Sydney. Lived in right on the beach. It was the most incredible six months yeah. ever. <laughs> I, I called my parents and told them I was transferring to Australia and I was never coming home. Funny, and then I realized that uh, that was actually more challenging than I thought. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, one of my best buddies and I went down there together and just had a blast. Now, of course, Bondi Beach is famous. Was it? Where? What beach were you near? Yeah, was it's that? called Coogee Beach, which is effectively okay. like three beaches down. down. Yeah, beaches in Sydney are block are like blocks in New York mm-hmm. City. You know, you just sort of like can orient yourself based on which beach you're you're next to. But it yeah. was probably a you know thirty minute walk between Bondi and. Coogee Beach where I was. Okay. And then what year in college was that that you went to Sydney? My junior year. Your junior year is your yep. third year. Okay. Interesting. And your degree, you came out with finance. But before that, there's a story you told at least once that I could find about renting apartments. Yeah. At Boston College. Yeah. That's how I got into real estate. Right. So when I was a freshman at Boston College, I lived in the dorms, mm-hmm. uh, which I hated because it was very restrictive and you're really crammed in. And there's all these great houses around um, BC and all the upper class people in the sense of juniors and seniors get to live in these houses and the younger kids are forced to live in these cages and uh, I said like what stops us from just renting one of these houses and all that stops you is like someone just needs to actually do it yeah so I just got a group of six guys together and rented house Mm -hmm. and throughout that process I ended up making friends with the real estate agent who rented us the, the apartment. Yeah. And we had to pay this real estate agent a lot of money mm-hmm. in order for him to like literally open the door for us and have us accept the, uh, the apartment. For right. Him. And I said, um, how did you do this? What do you need to do to do this? And I got really interested in it, especially after I realized the guy was in my finance class at mm-hmm. BC. Mm-hmm. He like sat two seats from me. And we had just paid him all this this cash. So I was like pretty interested in real estate and I was interested in finance and yeah. I'm like interested in um, you know new new things. So I just sort of explored it and ended up when I was 19 years old getting my real estate license in Boston and then all throughout college, except for when I was in Australia, yeah. I worked in the afternoons almost every day. I scheduled all my classes in the morning and I'd work mm-hmm. in the afternoon to, to make money and just support myself in college. My parents were very, I mean, I was very fortunate they helped with tuition, but I didn't have a, any, like, extra stuff, yeah. so it was really on me to make my way. 
Yeah, interesting. And when you were doing that, were you tied to a certain agency or? Yeah, I joined yeah. an agency, and yeah. it was very uh, interesting because I I ended up becoming the number one agent very quickly. Yeah. Uh, for two reasons. One is I started using the internet, and people are like, "Well, how did you get to you know have so many people that would be there looking for for you?" Whereas right. like a lot of these agents were sort of sitting there hoping that people would walk by this agency and, yeah. and come in. And it was this was in you know, 2000, and I would just post every listing I could find on Craigslist. And so people, Boston is like a very transient place, so all these people would actually be looking on the internet for places, and they'd, they'd call me. And I'd schedule all of these appointments back to back to back in the afternoon, and there would be sort of like a line waiting for me, and all the, the agents who were sort of doing things the way they've always done things, right. just like couldn't figure, figure it out. Which was really, that was sort of like my earliest moment of the power of the internet. Yeah. And how how scalable it was combined with with real estate, which in retrospect looks so obvious, but at that time it was just a totally new concept. Nine day. I mean, I think about it, it was like nineteen ninety six. I was doing work with the Bardlow, right, with Simon and Devine down in Youngstown, Ohio, and I'm on AOL surfing the web, and I ended up in Sweden or something. Like a friend of mine that was a roommate then still talks about it. We got to even take the last. We're going to go through this. The last five, six years and go to where you started with the original premise and where you are, yeah. but it, it was the right decision at the different points in time. Right? Yeah. So you, you went up at Ernst & Young in June of 2003. Yeah. For about a year, I think. Yeah. So I, I actually, right before that, I, I realized I didn't want to rent apartments for the rest of my life and I figured out I really loved real estate yeah. and I loved finance and I wanted to figure out the hybrid between real estate and finance. Yeah. And I loved studying abroad in Sydney, so I figured... I'll study abroad in New York. Okay. Right here. So how do you study abroad in New York when yeah. you're like out of college, you gotta get a job. Yeah. And hopefully you're like reasonably good at it and you'll check it out for a period of time and then you'll either move home or like move on to what you want to do. Right. And now I joke because that job is a structured finance job, which is re-underwriting commercial real estate loans that are gonna go into CNBS transactions. Okay. Which is a cross between real estate and finance uh, yeah. in New York. So that was my my initial foray into studying abroad. And um, fast forward from that, it's been you know 15 years. I, I live in New York, two little boys right. and uh, a wife, and, a, and an amazing company here. So things happen very very quickly. I did not <laughs> did not expect uh, that to happen, but yeah, I worked at Ernst Young for a year, which was interesting. And then I went to Granite Partners, which right. is a real estate investment bank, uh, which was interesting because it was more transactional. I was yep. I was sort of I liked the entrepreneurial spirit of the transactions you know something is going to happen and you got to sort of get together with a group of people to sort of make it happen right We're both on the sell side and on the buy side and on the financing side uh and then the reason i went to tish inspire which happened after a couple of years of, of doing banking is i just i really wanted to be on the principal side mm -hmm. of the table i wanted to be part of people who are actually making the buying decision. Right. And um, so I just got a really amazing opportunity at Tish Inspire to join their acquisition team in 2006. And they were doing a lot of acquisitions, which was very interesting. Uh, and then I worked with the acquisition team for uh, two or three years. And then I worked on that with the asset management team. And then I ran their global sustainability right. initiative for a year. So it was about a five year, call it my MBA in commercial real estate uh, from Tishman's Buyer. Yeah. Just learning all the different aspects of the industry. Now EY, were you in the real estate group that they had or were you in their broader kind of finance group? Well, I mean, they literally at that time, which I'm not sure if they still have the same structure, but they yeah. had a, a 
group called Structured Finance, oh, okay. which is effectively CMBS, gotcha. uh, RMBS, and some of their um, other like securitization type work that right. they were doing with all the investment banks. And then when you went to, going back to Granite Properties, which then turned into Savills, how big were they? Were you there at that point in time? How big was that company? Uh, pretty small. So that, it was Granite Partners, which is slightly different than Granite Properties. Yeah, sorry, yeah. but I guess Texas, yeah. So. Yeah, <laughs> sort of like, you didn't work here. Um, <laughs> they were relatively small. I mean, it was probably six partners and another, yeah. you know, 20 people that, that worked there. So it was yeah. a New York-based, you know, mid-size sort of boutique investment bank yeah. that did transactions all over North America. But, um, yeah, I, I got to learn a lot. I mean, I was really hands-on because it was such yeah. a small company. Well, I was going to say, you went from EY, which is just huge. I'm an alumni out of there. Yeah. Uh, but you, you, you come out of that to then to uh, the next one, and it's yeah much smaller. It'd be just totally different. And you were with EY for one year. It's a good foundation, and they've got training and everything else. But yeah. to go from that... Some ways it's probably refreshing. Other ways it was probably uh, I don't know. I want to second guess myself, like right, because you come from this big firm, this tiny one, and yeah. you're like, "What am I doing?" But you get a lot more opportunity, right? Yeah. So, and then you know, if you look at the the decision at E and Y and that group and the structured finance group, did you know or desire at that point in time to be part of the? When you say structured finance, because you could do structured finance that was non real estate, but you found yourself doing some real estate stuff in effect. Well, I took the job because I knew it was real estate yeah. focused. Like I, I specifically joined because it was really part of that CMBS group. Yeah. I mean, they, they label it structured finance, but you know, in practicality, it is, you're the CMBS desk at gotcha. Ernst & Young. I mean, you're, yeah. you're basically the, the other half of investment banks that don't in-house, you know, all of their sort of, um, advisory work for lack yeah. of a better term uh, on the CMBS stuff. Some banks yeah. will do it all in-house yeah. and others will keep the bank you know, relatively lean and yeah. then they'll lean on an Ernst & Young or, or someone like that to basically be the, the back office, right. if you will, to make sure that everything is um, good to go before the documents are printed. Yeah, go on a different conversation for a different day, but God, did the CMBS market go sideways yeah. later on, but... It's interesting, right? And you sort of look at the history of that and how it just fundamentally just kind of dried up, right, for a while. Yeah, well, it was so. actually super, in retrospect, it was very interesting for me because I had a front row seat to see what was going. I mean, in a literal sense, we re-underwrote every single one of the loans that was going into the CMBS transactions. Yeah. And I could see it even over the course of just one year, um, you know, pushing the boundaries in terms of, you know, the loan to value, the different covenants that were in each one of the loans and, and you know, it really ran up after I left there, but you could sort of start to see the pressure of trying to get loans into these um, transactions. Yeah, it's interesting. So let's, well, we're gonna fast forward then. So you left uh, Tishman July of 2011. By the way, I don't know if you've ever recognized this with you. May, June, and July for you, your whole career, by the way, mm. are significant events. Mm. It's really interesting, actually. So if I look at every place you've been and when you started it, it's June, July. I look at when you started Honest Buildings, I think it was roughly, on LinkedIn, you say March of 2012. Effectively, it was July of 2011. Mm. You just didn't, so there's a gap, at least, in your LinkedIn, but yeah. you started it then. Your rounds, actually, almost all June, July, this last round was May 31st. Oh, so, so you just missed it by a day. So. I'm going to tell you going forward, yeah. I'm going to watch you. Yeah. 
around June, July, because something's going to happen. Like, yeah, literally, you're, it's really interesting. Yeah, interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or anything. No, that's a great analysis. That's like a Malcolm Gladwell outliers. Uh, I don't know what it means. Moment right there. I don't know what it means. It may be, you know, when you look at, you know, you, people graduate that time of year. And so, of course, you started a job. Most people start their jobs then or something. Yeah. But maybe for you, there's a reflection point that you're not recognizing. Or maybe it's just sort of random in some nature, anyway, relative to that date. But anyway, July of 2011... You start Honest Buildings. Um, your sister, Garrett, younger sister now that I know, was part of that. A guy named Cody Roberts came in a month after that. Yeah. He's all, still here, I think, yeah. as an engineer. He's yeah. the co-founding engineer, founding engineer, right? Yeah. Um, I believe you raised some initial money in, in September of that year. And then sort of talking, like, what, what made you decide to go do this and, and do it with your sister and with Cody? Yeah, I mean, there was a giant, I, I read a book once that talked about ideas, and there's a big fallacy, I think, that people believe that ideas just happen. It's like, you wake up one day and you're like, this is what I'm going to do, or you're in the shower and it's like, I got right. it, I'm going to do that. And in reality, they take years to formulate and a bunch of different things sort of pile on, and then the idea, tip, the idea moment is typically the just the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. And I think that... Um, the, the biggest thing that happened for me in my own career, and I think one of the, the moments that just made me realize that not necessarily that Honest Buildings was going to happen, but that the internet would play such a profound part of the next generation of real estate yeah. was the iPhone. And it sounds so obvious in retrospect, but I remember watching it at Titian's Fire when it first came out and the power of what you could do with a computer in your pocket was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Yeah. And I would sometimes joke, you know, you could get uh, reviews of 50 different pizzerias around your office in six seconds. Mm. But if you want to spend a million dollars on a construction project, it takes you six months and you have a bunch of binders stacked up on your, your desk and everything is in PDFs. And yeah. by the way, even with the as the owner, you have very little insight into what's happening because the contractors actually have all the information that you need, despite the fact that you take all the risk and aren't paying the, the yeah. bill. Uh, and so, while that didn't like come together, you know, the exact moment, I think uh, Garrett and Cody, who were technologists, they were saying like, we think that there's a real opportunity, and we'd started to talk about stuff and um, some of the early, you know. It, versions of mm -hmm. Honest Buildings really have nothing to do with what we're doing today, but really was a full credit to them because they were pushing the boundaries saying this is going to happen. Right. And in a way, sort of convinced me that you know, this is something that's not only going to happen, but it's actually doable because they knew, they actually knew how to build how products. How'd, yeah. you, how'd you meet Cody? How do you, where do you come into play? I couldn't figure out the connection. Yeah, he worked with Garrett at an uh, internet company in gotcha. Seattle. And, okay. and today... Um, or sort of, you know, loosely related, but Garrett's husband, Andy, is Cody's cousin. Okay. So there's like okay. a, like he's almost, almost family. And, and we knew that back then yeah. also. And so they worked very closely together. And yeah, like one thing led to another. And yeah. we, we, we did it, took the, took the leap. Well, the original, I didn't, you know, you and I met a couple years back when I used the word when I was on the buying side, when I was at General Growth. And, um, and the model then is very consistent, although it's evolved as it should to what it is now. And I, I didn't know the basis for how it was founded and really in preparing for this. And I think 
you know, the decision at that point in time was probably was the right decision. So this, you would describe it in different interviews as sort of a Yelp, LinkedIn thing, B2B play. You initially, trying to look at the status, I think pretty quickly in, in 2011, more so in 2012, had like, I think it was 30,000 building profiles, and that just like went off the charts pretty quick. I want to say within four months or something, you'd quoted yourself. I think you had 12 employees, but it went to like 1.6 million profiles. Yeah. And then you go later on, and I'm thinking back on 2013, you were tracking dollar volume, yeah. in effect, and it went from 50 to 500 yeah. in a year. Yeah. And it was um, it was then in 2014 when you said, said, "Geez, how do I how do I monetize that? Because yeah. I because I can't now." Um, I want to go back though too a little bit. So if I take, did you do a capital raise, a seed raise, and did you raise some capital in September 2011? Yeah, I think the earliest seed capital was sort of like friends and family yeah um was in the latter part of 2011 and then we did a more formal um seed round in 2012 with some yeah. you know venture investors and more institutional type folks yeah because i had both dates on again june of 2013 june of 2015 and may 31st of 2018 yeah were all periods you raised capital now i have to go on a tangent because it was interesting to me Having said that, on January 31st of 2012, um, there was a contest going on in, about a clean hack, hack, clean web hackathon, yeah. and you made a run in a relative sustainability, and you won, yeah. and you won a GoPro camera. And I love that, by the way. There was like one article out there, so you were still kind of poking, even early on. I well, mean, yeah, it's right? just funny, yeah, everything kind of happens for a reason, but one of our investors uh, was a guy named, is a guy named Sunil Paul, who's, yeah. a, who's just an absolutely incredible guy, uh, and he had started this whole movement, really, called the Clean Web Movement, Yeah, and this is after he founded and successfully exited, like, six companies. I mean, he mm-hmm. is still, to this day, one of the most well-regarded both investors and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And so he had this and basically said, hey, we're going to do this thing. Like, will you guys participate? So which we said, of course. And then, um, you know, because we had a great engineering team, mostly mm-hmm. led by Cody. Uh, yeah, we just were poking around at different ideas. Yeah. And it was, it was a good time. Do you still have the GoPro camera? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> Someone might have. It's somewhere. It was very funny. <laughs> that is funny. So... Come through sort of the pivotal moment. So again, you know, 2011 gets formed, uh, 2012 starts getting more serious. You see greater volume, pretty exponentially. It's actually unbelievable the growth yeah. on the building profiles 2013 to 2014. But I think 2014 then turned into a it's a question, a decision point for you around: Do I need to pivot, and what does this need to be? Yeah. And and it seems like that year was that that moment in time. Is yeah. that accurate? Yeah. And I would say just when I look back on the last, you know, six years, I would say that there's a couple constants. Like it sort of seems like we're doing different things, mm-hmm. but fundamentally we're doing exactly the same thing, which yeah. is construction or projects are, is one of the mass, most massive, you know, opportunities I think that lies ahead of the internet. There's $10 trillion right. a year spent. It's just wild how much capital goes back mm-hmm. and forth. And that is actually a true marketplace. There's buyers and sellers mm-hmm. on both sides, and their owners are the buyers, and the contractors and architects and engineers, and everyone, they're the sellers. Yeah. And so we've always been trying to get at the same exact thing from the yeah. very first moment, is how do you, you know, effectively bring that demand and supply onto the internet yeah. to help facilitate transactions? And then if you can do that successfully, you'll have a very big impact on the world 
because of the built environment, cities everywhere is basically bogged down by this complete inefficiency in this market. And it impacts people every single day all over the world. Uh, so our, from the very first moment, it's like, how do you unlock efficiency in this giant offline marketplace? Uh, and so every different sort of iteration has been around the same theme. And every time we sort of make a change, it's just like, what's the, what's the way to sort of tweak the dial to get at that um, marketplace? Mm-hmm. So in 2014, what we realized is we had a basically an open marketplace matching vendors and contractors. And it took about 24 months to get from zero to $500 million of transactions. And we were pumped about that. Yeah. I mean, they were ma- we were matching big real estate owners with vendors and watching the transactions happen. And we were staggered. I mean, it's, it's staggering the amount of capital that you can see flow through this uh, platform. Uh, but what we started to realize is now in retrospect, fairly obvious, which is it's really hard to get owners to convert all of their projects. They'll only use it when they want to find a new one. But if you're a good owner, like a GDP, you're like, I have the people that I typically want. So it's only right. like the one out of a thousand projects where you're actually looking for someone really new. Yeah. Which is a bummer. Uh, and then uh, the second piece was that we didn't have enough built for the owner to rely on our platform for all that project. So you're in this sort of like, you know, catch 22 moment. And what we basically realize is after a bunch of conversations with really great owners in New York and I mean across the U S is that the system by which they're actually tracking all the projects is pretty broken. Mm-hmm. And that was a, that was a, one of the moments, even though it was a longer sort of um, period of time that we, spent a lot of time in sort of discovery with the biggest owners and said, if we could deliver you an enterprise grade way to track and manage start to finish all of your projects, would you convert to that system for everything? And it turns out the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. So really that's why we've been spending the last you know, three years um, or four years mm-hmm. building that end to end platform, which started with bidding and then we moved on to capital tracking, then right. we moved on to invoices, and then we moved on to approvals, and now we've wrapped a whole data layer around it. Um, you know, it's just an incremental build to an end-to-end platform that can manage and track all the projects. Mm-hmm. And I think when you when you think about that, it's just a, it's an interesting story of evolution against the same sort of core founding, Foundation. Yeah. founding principles. Yeah. And the most interesting thing is we'll actually go back to the marketplace eventually. So now that we have, you know, we, we took two years to get to $500 million of transactions, which was a great feat. We felt so... Well, now you're like at $13 billion, or you're in the billions. I read a $13 billion on number, but I think it's old. So it took two years to do $500 million, and now yeah. we do a billion dollars a month. Okay. So it's just wild to see right. what the power of what great, you know, enterprise-grade platforms can do for the biggest owners. And you have folks like Brookfield... Uh, who say they're saving between you know five and seven percent of their construction volume, which is hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, just in a couple different markets. Mm-hmm. So not only now do we know that it works and that we can deliver it, but to see that kind of impact has just been something that really satisfying for everyone. Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing, and it's you know the story and the metrics are compared to systems and technology historically in our space. It's hard to quantify the value, right? But in your case, it really. It really isn't actually. It's pretty obvious. Um, what about you know if you if you play it out now forward looking on at some level you get scale and of course uh, in coming to the general term of prop tech I think there's a lot of people using those words in yeah. different fashions loosely I would argue 
you know, you folks and, and VTS, certainly some of the better stories, if not best stories that are out there, right, yeah. in regards to it. Um, and you take VTS as an example where they're, you know, pivoting and now trying to provide where they've got a certain level of concentration analytics back to their customer base. Yeah. I mean, you have that same capability. Yeah. You, you think you're going to go down that path. Yeah, so. well, we're doing it okay. right now. Oh, you are? Okay. We just haven't launched it like ah. uh, Nick and Brandon did, which was very smart. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, I mean, we're actively working on it. And, and the interesting thing about it is, well, one, I think the world of, of VTS, and I think mm -hmm. that it's a great product. Um, and it's interesting with construction data because there's a different dynamic in the marketplace with the data that we have versus leasing data. Yep. And the dynamic is that in any marketplace, you have buyers and sellers. Yep. And typically, data opaqueness benefits the seller. Yep. So you don't really want other sellers to know what's happening. And, yep. that, and the more sort of opaqueness you have, typically that's you know, created an advantage. As the buyer, data transparency is very valuable and it actually allows the whole market to move more quickly. So in the leasing world, owners are sellers. Yes. Right? So that yeah. that's why it's it's actually I think like a little bit trickier and I think that VTS is going to knock the cover off the ball with their yeah. product. But it's it's traditionally been a little bit trickier as you know to get people to become comfortable with with putting it out there. Although yeah. now I think there's enough critical mass that it's just going to happen and mm -hmm. and I think that with great technology of course, it's going to be anonymized and normalized, so you're never going to... You, there's no actual risk, but it's just an interesting yeah. mindset. And in construction, the owners are the buyers. Yeah. So there's actually like a great advantage of data sharing and yeah. working together to create benchmarks that actually benefit everyone over yeah. time. But so I think that one of the things that VCS is doing and that we're doing, which is really unique and arguably never done before... And which I believe actually creates a whole new category, which is different than prop tech, but it's almost its owner tech. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many companies that are actually in working side by side, you know, joined as partners with the biggest owners in the world. Mm -hmm. There's different aspects, you know, it might help building management systems or, you know, help lighting or help this or, or help that or, you know, there's all kinds of different things that are obviously happening in prop tech, but who are the partners to drive returns for owners? Mm -hmm. There really aren't that many people that are in that mm -hmm. category, which I think both VTS and Honest Buildings are in the same exact mm -hmm. category. I don't think there is anyone else, really. Yeah, I, I think that, that that data yeah. is, again, going to empower owners in a way yeah. that, that fundamentally changes the industry. Yeah. And I think that's super exciting, and that's a long way to answer your question. No, we're, we're basically creating this like similar set of benchmarks to answer questions. How much should project cost? Mm -hmm. like we know the answer. Yeah. How long should they take? Like, really important question when you're underwriting assets. Mm -hmm. Really important question if you're an investor and you're like wondering whether you're going to trust this operator with this, you know, equity investment. Yeah. Really important for banks to understand uh, performance and like be able to benchmark underwritings as they look at them. Uh, and then who are the vendors? Like who are you actually going to use for this project? And what's their history of actually delivering on time and on budget? It turns out we actually have the holy grail of answers to, to a lot of those questions uh, in a way that fundamentally I, I don't think anyone else has ever... Yeah, it does. Well, I was going to say, there's actually on the... There's an argument to be had, I think, on the selling side for this. You know, like labor costs, which are very regional. You know, labor costs are going up and I'm about to put a bid out. Yeah. I'd want to know that because I'm going to... Although you think it'd be obvious, right? Because they'd have a difficulty in hiring people and the yeah. wage costs would go up. They may not. So I might be able to use an opportunity to increase margins or something. Yeah. So. It's interesting though.
So, no, I think you're right. I mean, there's not... I can't think of any other solutions out there. There's a lot of new early stage stuff that would say the same thing. Now, given your background and what you did at Tishman yep. and the award you won in the hackathon, yeah. <laughs> will you go down the path on post-project completion and occupancy? I mean, it's interesting because if I build out a building and as part of that, I'm defining these building control systems I'm putting in and I know what's going in yeah. and some level they're going to take that and depreciate that. Like there's different paths you could go, right? Sure. And one could argue there's a path, not today, but in the future, some consideration about, do I play not just a role in the development of it, do I play a role relative to the, the building control systems that, that are part of that and sustainability? Would you go down that path? I think that everything in a weird way is related to sustainability in the sense that if you can create market efficiencies, by definition, that is the most sustainable thing you could possibly do for the planet. Yeah. Create cities that actually operate more effectively than they did before. Mm -hmm. So that is like our path. Um, and one of the things that we are doing, which is similar but not the same uh, to what you're saying, is we're, we're helping owners track long-term capital plans. So when you buy the building, mm -hmm. what's your plan for this year, three years, five years, ten years over time? And how can we use smart machine learning effectively to help not only suggest the projects that you likely should do, but make sure that you're on track with the plan that, that you put forth. Um, it's like a different way to think about controls. People have thought about controls as the building management system mm -hmm. or lighting, and we think about it as, hey, if you're the asset manager or the owner of the building, how can you maximize the you know, efficiency of the overall asset rather mm -hmm. than like the efficiency of a, that piece? Yeah. Right. It's interesting. So let me, let me ask and I'm going to change topics a little bit, but, you know, over this career and the things that you've done and the path you've taken, have there been mentors or people that you reach out to at different points in time or in, I guess June, July inflection points <laughs> and, <laughs> and seek advice for or, and then your role with kind of your investors play. You've had some investors that have been with you a while, actually. Yeah. Well, it's actually, I would say they're interrelated. Um, First of all, definitely have uh, mentors or people that I consider mentors. I'm not sure if, if they consider uh, yeah. you know, themselves mentors or if, or if I'm their mentee. But uh, for me, I mean, my dad is the first and foremost one because he's been an entrepreneur and he loves to strategize and think about different stuff, even though he doesn't come from the real estate industry. Like so many of the patterns and things that happen are actually pretty similar. So that's yeah. like they've been the most steady one you know, throughout my life. And then at Tish Inspire, I had two... Uh, guys, one's named Michael Spees, uh, mm -hmm. who's still at Tishman's Fire, and the other's named Tom Farrell, uh, who ran the global design and construction for Tishman's Fire. And both of those uh, guys were instrumental just in me looking at people saying, like, these are really good people, um, really, really accomplished in what they've been able to do over the course of their career, uh, have great families, and just sort of figured out how to balance everything while still being able to like give back to younger people so and i'm still like you know pretty close uh with with those guys even though it's been you know a long period of time and then now that we've brought on a whole bunch of investors in a weird way the the board that we've created are the people that in kind of operate almost as if they're mentors um and they're definitely people that i admire uh, so we have Rick Clark, who we were talking about before from Brookfield. I mean, he's just, you know, just an incredible, uh, incredibly accomplished person, but also nice and humble and amazingly, you know, uh, good with his time and direction for us. And it's been really great to work with them. 
uh, Michael Turner, who's now the president of Oxford, uh, in a short period of time has become like very influential for us as a company and me as a person. And these are people that I can look to as, as leaders to say, you know, what, what do they do that we really like and how can I sort of level up to be that caliber? Um, Lisa Picard, who runs uh, EQ, formerly Equity Office yeah. uh, at Blackstone, has become a mentor, and she actually just joined the board of mm-hmm. Honest Buildings. And she's just an incredible leader that I um, look up to. And then some of our earliest investors, a guy named Gary Dillabo, who started at the Wesley, he was a, a leader at eBay, and then he, he was at the Wesley Group, has also just helped us sort of like formulate a lot of our different thoughts over the course of the years. So I just feel like super lucky and humble to have so many great people sort of around the company. And um, I don't know if you saw Duke Long's uh, list this morning of the Power 100 in real estate, but it's incredible. Like of the top 16 people, six of those people are either on the board of Honest Buildings or investors that I feel like yeah, very connected to. Well, in this last round too, just a couple of months ago, you... It was a wider net in some ways too, because I think it wasn't First Capital was in there, yeah. Oxford was in there, uh, and of course First Capital is with Gazit money, right? So I don't know if the ties to First Capital or Gazit, but the Gazit guys and, and the gentleman that runs it is just unbelievable, right? They're great organizations. So yeah, it's good. I think it's something unique to our platform as well. I mean, you, I'm not sure if you've seen you know other people do it, but my strategy is is um, how can you partner with the best people? And that doesn't necessarily mean that you only need to partner with one or, right. or two. A lot of times with venture, you know, what I've noticed over the years is, you know, some people will build, you'll take a really big check from someone who sort of leads the round. And that is really important and, you know, really incredible if you're fortunate enough to do that. Um, but you also just get them if you do that. And so one of the things that I feel like we also have benefited from a, a huge amount is, having meaningful investors and not in the sense that they, you know, give you a dollar, but have meaningful financial investors, but have them have a greater syndicate of, of those mm-hmm. people who can really help you. Uh, and I just feel like we've been so fortunate to have not just one, but, you know, 30 investors that have been incredibly helpful for us. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great list. Well, we're getting near the end of time. So there's a question I always ask that I have to ask you, um, Although you've got a lot of working here still ahead of you, yeah. that, right? Is if you were given advice to your twenty-year-old self when yeah. you were in Sydney at the beach, yeah. <laughs> what what advice would you give yourself? Don't drink that last beer. No, uh, <laughs> I think that there's a really big opportunity in real estate and technology, and I think that there's been a lot of a lot written about how much money has gone into the sector and how much, um, how many different companies there are and how, you know, many of these companies won't make it or won't become, you know, big companies. And as crazy as it sounds, like it feels to me like we're at the very early innings of what will actually happen in our space Mm -hmm. um, relative to other asset classes like FinTech Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, even consumer technology this is we're still like in the dark ages i mean it is just getting started as you know you probably know better than than i do so i'm still very excited about it and i think to the younger people out there i would say take a hard look at it and when you're if you're going to create a company the thing that i always say is figure out the value that you're actually creating Mm -hmm. and try to quantify it Mm -hmm. 
Because if you can't do that, there's so many problems, you know, in quotes, problems in the real estate world, but many of them like don't really move the needle. And I think it, it confuses the market a little bit if there's too many people trying to do too many different things. But if you can find something that, where you can actually quantify the value, there's big opportunity in our space and it's a really exciting time. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, well, thank you for the time. I wish you the best of success, although you don't need luck. I think you're going to do great on your own. Yeah. And uh, really appreciate the time. I want to thank GPG Advisors for sponsoring the podcast, and I hope our paths cross again. So, thanks, Yeah, guys. thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure.